0: We track everything in terms of client engagements, every time we talk to a client, every time a new opportunity opens up. Uh, we have a funnel that we manage, just like if you were running a p and uh, where deals funnel in from the top and filter their way down to the bottom. You know, I can tell you right now, the four labs are, uh, are uh, 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 involved in about 800 client engagements a year. Hmm. Uh, and, and so we're very much in the market, hearing, hearing challenges, uh, engaging with that, uh, and that that is one one channel into uh, the product pipeline uh, or product concept
1: pipeline that we've developed. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Zach Miller. We continue to see consolidation across the financial services industry. In fact, a lot of traditional FIs have entire innovation programs designed to tap outside talent. But what if you're looking for organic growth? If you're Experian, the global financial data firm, how do you get more out of your existing assets, things like the data across the enterprise, its distribution channels, its sales force, and brand? You create Data Labs, an internal environment outfitted with data scientists and crack product professionals, where Experian can create future products around customer needs. Eric Haller, head of Experience Data Labs, joins us on the podcast today to talk about how the data firm finds pathways to innovation while positioning the greater firm to be competitive in the future. We geek out a bit on tech, as Eric describes some of Data Labs' experiences with new modalities like text and voice for credit. We also discuss AR, VR, and advances in cryptography. Eric Haller is my guest today on the Tearsheet podcast. Oh, uh,
0: my name is Eric Haller, and I'm the Executive Vice President and Global Head of Experian Data Labs.
1: So, what is Data Labs like for for audience that hasn't heard of Data Labs? What is like? It sounds like some geeky think tank, huh?
0: <laughs> well, you know, geeky, yes. Think tank, no. We, uh, uh, we are the R&D part of Experian. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're not familiar with Experian, uh, uh, we are a large uh, uh, enabler in the uh, information technology industry. Uh, we serve a number of uh, vertical markets, including financial services with uh, 17,000 employees, and we do about $5 billion a year revenue. The labs are all about breakthrough experimentation uh, in all of our businesses across all of our geographies. We do business in over 40 countries.
1: And I guess what was the genesis of the labs? When when were the labs established and and what role did they play in, in, in the greater Experian sort of ecosystem?
0: So, uh, I, I'm, this is my, my second tour at Experian. I actually was with Experian back in the 90s doing uh, uh, corporate development and strategic partnerships and, and left to do a, a few startups and was recruited back to uh, lead one of our P&Ls. And uh, in, that, in that time that I served uh, leading one of our, our businesses, I came to the conclusion that, you know, we could be doing a lot more as a company just investing in ourselves and leveraging the assets that we had, whether it be the data in our enterprise, our our distribution channels, our brand, our sales force, where we were looking, and we always look at, you know, inorganic opportunities to grow, but where we could actually invest in ourselves as an organic opportunity to grow, take bigger risks. So I made a pitch internally to create an environment that would allow us to uh, outfit ourselves with, uh, uh, data scientists, software engineers, uh, product, we'll say product uh, development experts or leaders, uh, where we could uh, de novo organically build uh, the products for our future. And uh, that investment was made about nine years ago. Uh, it was just a little um, uh, kind of a toe in the water. Uh, I, they gave me enough budget to hire seven people. <laughs> And we, uh, they said it was okay that I started it up the first lab uh, where I live, down here in San Diego. And from there, it's grown. We have four labs now, one in London, obviously the one here in San Diego, Paulo and Singapore. Uh, we have uh, 110 uh, scientists and engineers and product leaders across those four labs. And the lab products themselves are generating nine figures in revenue for experience. Over the last five years, uh, lab product revenues have grown at, grow, grown at a compound annual growth rate of 120%. So we're really excited about um, the impact that these products are making on our core business and the products that are in our pipeline that should shape our future.
1: So I'd love to hear about some of those the, the products in the pipeline in a second, but you, you mentioned the revenues that were produced by products that had been developed in, in, in labs. Um, obviously, that's, that's a great KPI. Are there other KPIs that Experian Measures... Um, you know, the, the, value and the success of, 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 the data labs?
0: Well, you know, it's, um, uh, it was always, uh, our first, when we first, uh, entered into this, this, uh, this adventure, uh, the, the bar was pretty low. Uh, and I worked for our global chief operating officer and he said, you know, Eric, if, if you can just get us positions, so our customers when they're running into challenging problems, think to call Experian, uh, that would be a great measure. And so we, we can, we can, uh, you know, survey sales and see, you know, how, uh, how that feedback's coming in and how many times you get called out to meet with a client. And, uh, that was the initial bar. It wasn't even revenue related at all. Uh, you know, the, the handshake deal that I had with my, uh, with the guy I worked for was, you know, we'll know if it's working, we'll know if it's not working and we don't know what kind of uh, growth curve, you know, revenues are going to take. And I never want to hold the labs accountable to hit a specific revenue target uh, that that's likely to start to, to uh, ease off on the risks that you're going to wind up taking to try to skate ahead of where our business is currently. Um, and that, that arrangements worked really well and we track everything in terms of client engagements. Every time we talk to a client, every time a new opportunity opens up uh, we have a funnel that we manage. Just like if you were running a and L uh, where deals funnel in from the top and filter their way down to the bottom. know I can tell you right now the four labs are uh, are uh, uh, involved in about 800 client engagements a year Hmm. Uh, and and so we're very much in the market hearing hearing challenges uh, engaging with that uh, and that that is one one channel into uh, the product pipeline uh, or product concept pipeline that we've developed
1: and do the four labs have different personalities? Like, do different geographies focus on different problems?
0: <laughs> totally, completely. That's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, so, you know, when we started to build out the labs, you know, management question number one was, you know, how do you want to um, uh, have those labs contribute as part of your investment portfolio in terms of the products that they'll build, they're, they're building? And, and our course of action was, to let the region shape the problems that uh, that wind up being uh, resolved or addressed in the product portfolio for that lab. So so for example, in the UK lab, uh, they're very much about GDPR and uh, open banking, uh, and they have been for several years, and the whole world is starting to move in that direction. So by the, uh, the fact that we have a diversity in our portfolio of ideas and solutions, uh, has, you know, surprisingly given us the opportunity to port innovation uh, from one geography to another. Um, in in uh, Span- or, uh, Latin America, the gentleman who runs uh, the lab there, we hired from uh, Telefonica, actually from Vivo, which is the branded Telefonica business in Brazil, and he ran uh, R&D for them. So the solutions that he gravitates towards, you know, whether it's uh, subconsciously or otherwise, Uh, have uh, everything to do with mobile. And uh, that's not all that lab focuses on. It's got a very broad set of of things that they're addressing, but because of his expertise or core expertise in mobile, we're seeing a lot of innovation coming out of that lab uh, with that respect. Uh, In the U S it's all been for the last few years. I mean, it's a, it's a very broad portfolio, but in financial services, there's been definitely heavy emphasis on customer acquisition. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, the, the front end of that, of that uh, pipeline, uh, we've been very focused on that and, and trying to uh, develop uh, new thinking, creative ideas and new products in that space.
1: So I wanna hear about that in a second, um, but I'm curious first to understand a little bit better um, how that product pipeline that you describe interfaces, w- what does the interface between labs and the rest of the company look like? How does how a product um, make its way through the pipeline and into the general product portfolio?
0: Yeah, so it's, um, it's been an evolutionary process, and I think we've learned a lot over the last nine years. Um, initially, uh, you know, one of the first questions you get asked is, you know, uh, uh, how do you prioritize? So with 800 client engagements, you know, right now we've got uh, 41 uh, pro- projects that we are actively engaged in uh, with a path to becoming a product in the market. Um, but how do you go from that 800 down to, you know, maybe 30 to 40 projects a year that you're going to actually put, put resources against. So initially nine years ago, uh, we said, let's do that by committee, uh, which is a terrible idea. (laughs) The, uh, the idea was, Hey, since, since every business is investing in these labs, let's have a large committee with all the strategic business unit, you know, presidents, and we can all sit around a table and you can share uh, all the uh, concepts that are coming through and the criteria you're using uh, to shape or describe what what they they represent, and then we can can do a a vote and I'll make sure we all agree. Uh, Fortunately for the labs, that process had a very short shelf life. Uh, We went in with our list of priorities, we described how we would rank them and what we did, and uh, the first couple of times, there were no changes to the, to the pipeline at all hmm. uh, in terms of how we prioritize things. And then uh, it, was, it was suggested that we maybe make it an annual event. And um, what wound up happening is that prioritization process um, has completely disappeared. We, don't, hmm. we, haven't, we haven't engaged in it in about six years. And that's because you know, we're very good at communicating what we're doing. And because we have a, a, a strong process, they're supportive of it. The process itself, uh, you know, given my background in, in M&A and in strategic alliances, I can tell you that you know, I spent a lot of time building uh, uh, very uh, thick papers or documents, uh, very large PowerPoint presentations. Uh, when we went into the board to talk about a merger or an acquisition, we were very well prepared and thought through so many different aspects of the deal. Uh, if I did that for every opportunity that came into the lab, the people working the opportunities and just figuring out what we would work on would probably be a larger group than the group that's actually doing the work. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so uh, what we did is distilled uh, all of that thinking down to two things. Uh, one thing was the uh, magnitude of impact. You know, is this a project that we believe will move the needle for experience? Uh, at at one point, we gave it a number, which for us was ten million dollars in revenue a year. We had to be able to either whiteboard, napkin scratch, articulate around a table how this product was going to at least achieve ten million dollars of revenue a year when it was mature. If it didn't get to that, it's not worth our time. Believe it or not, that weeded out a lot of ideas. The second the second one has to do with our ability to execute and. I, you know, that's the other thing that weeds out a lot where people come in with these ideas that are like, we'll say, you know, I've heard the term boil the ocean or blue sky or, you know, really large, ambitious opportunities. But, you know, you would you would need you would need, uh, we'll say, you know, maybe hundreds or thousands of, of members in an ecosystem to adopt adopt what you want to do. Like it's classic chicken and egg problem. We see that in the payment services business all the time, you know, acceptance and issuance. Um, those are really challenging things. Sometimes we're willing to take those on. If we have such a clear value proposition that, you know, we think we might have a chance at it. But, uh, typically, uh, you know, if we don't have the right, uh, uh the right types of people that we'd have to go on a, a massive hiring curve for, or we, uh, uh, we think that, you know, that the, the people that you have to get or the players you have to get to make something happen is just way too ambitious. We we downplay that. And so what winds up happening is we get projects that are one to three years ahead of our business, but close to our core. They're not so extreme that um, uh, when a product is completed and it's active and we've got you know four or five, six clients on it, that it doesn't have a home in one of our business units. So the the lab's role is to beta test or proof of concept, maybe get up to a half a dozen clients on something. And then it goes to the business to
1: scale. And then they're responsible for. Working they're, through. They're, they're,
0: <laughs> they're responsible. So I could, I can tell you like the single biggest uh, product that's come out of the lab. Uh, we had signed up we had six of the 10 largest banks in the United States uh, running in production out of the lab, which I do not like. I don't like having all that responsibility to keep things up and running when you've got, you know, hundreds of analysts in India using your platform and it goes down on the weekend, you know, all of a sudden you've got your R&D scientists, you know, on the, on the weekend trying to get it back up. Mm. Those things are not great for an R&D environment, but we did that. And uh, at, at, at the right point, our business hired the right people to, to be able to take it on. Uh, at the time, it was the first uh, multi-tenant Hadoop cluster running both Cloudera and SaaS in the world. And so, you know, to have, you know, that was, we built that, gosh, I want to say five and a half years ago, somewhere Mm -hmm. around there. So it was pretty cutting edge at the time. Uh, And we had to get the right personnel within the business to take it on. But once that, that happened, uh, that scaled to be uh, what's now considered to be experience, uh, largest blockbuster product in the history of our company. Wow. Yeah.
1: So So cool. Very cool. Um, So before we talk about, um, I guess, things that are, three years out. Um, can we talk about, you said you've done a lot of work in the past couple of years on customer acquisition. Can we talk about some of the things that have come through that, that work?
0: Yeah, sure. So, you know, they range anywhere from like, if you've seen the most recent, uh, release <clears throat> on, uh, on Experian Lyft, which is a, uh, a product focused on uh, the underserved market. So, you know, we do innovations like boost and Lift, where we allow, uh, customers to use, we'll say, non-traditional data rather than what's reported into the bureau. They can use the rental payment trades or utility payments. Uh, we may go to public record information uh, and other data sources. And then we've coupled that rather than using historical uh, logistic regression modeling, uh, we've developed our own approach to um, uh, machine learning uh, where we can actually explain. We can explain how the model's performing, uh, even though it's a a nonlinear approach uh, to credit risk modeling. Uh, We developed our own um, technology around explainable AI to be able to do that. uh, And we benchmarked its performance against uh, other technologies that have been uh, more vocal with white papers and uh, uh, patents, so we could see how we would perform against that. So that's a product we just released. We have uh, a lot of uh, excitement around that. Um, and that's actually in the we'll say the underwriting part of of acquisition. On the engagement part of acquisition, we we're actually engaging with uh, with the consumer. Uh, we built uh, a product that's out in the market now called Text for Credit. The challenge that we were hearing in the market was uh, principally it had started with retailers, and you know we heard the 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 noise that uh gee here we are in modern times where people are, everybody's carrying a mobile phone in their pocket yet um when we want to engage with them about opening up a line of credit we still have the same processes in place that we had over 20 years ago where somebody walks up to the register and at that point uh an associate says uh, hey you know would you like 20% off of the goods you're buying today would you like to open up a cre- you know a card with our store mm-hmm. and you know that's you know I, I probably preaching to the choir, everybody realizes it's a bit annoying, especially in these days um especially when you have people behind you uh you know it's a it's an awkward feeling what if you don't get get approved uh you know yeah sure I'll, I'll take it and then they say oh, sorry it didn't work out um you know here's a number to call it, it, that's it's just not the right kind of thing that we should be doing uh now you know when we're 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 almost twenty years into the twenty first century so uh the what we came up with was a, an approach that didn't require a lot of infrastructure for the retailers. We had experimented with integration within Wi-Fi to acquire customers. We experimented with beacons. We, we partnered with several uh, companies at the time, uh, outfitted our lab with beacons and built mobile apps that would trigger mm-hmm. by beacons. You know, I mean, we, we went through, and I think you know, almost like chasing, like a dog chasing a squirrel, You know, every time a new tech opened up, we were like, hey, well, let's try this. Maybe we can make this work. Uh, And then uh, uh, I can't remember exactly how how we were inspired with the notion, uh, but we said, you know, what if we just used the text on the phone? What if it was just texting a a word to a short code and then uh, we can engage somebody through a mobile web browser? It doesn't even have to be, they don't even have to download a mobile app. Mm -hmm. Could we make that work and how convenient could we make it? So you know, we partnered with the mobile network operators where uh, we can uh, pull. They can provide us information that we can verify against uh, when a, somebody uh, engages with us through their mobile device. And they do that. They opt in to that, by the way. So it's you know, when they text a shortcode, they get a they get a link back, including a link for disclosures, and they're told, hey, this is what we're going to do. Do you feel comfortable with it? Um, it's actually you know not invasive at all, but uh, they can click on the link, and uh, we'll address we'll address our customers by name. We've verified uh, a lot of information before we even ask them for a piece of information, and and the amount of data that we ask for is very limited. It makes life much more convenient. You're not spending a lot of time uh, typing characters into your phone. We, um, being Experian, we have uh, a, a nice advantage in that the clients that we work with, we already host all their decision logic their rules, their, their models, we already have the data that's being used to, to be accessed for the underwriting process. So when we have the front end right, the back end is, is, is a breeze for us. Hmm. And so in this case, you know, being able to, to come back to somebody with an instant uh, 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 approval on a line of credit, that piece of the work is, is what we do day in and day out. Um, but that mobile web experience, we really had to get right. And so that's, that's being rolled out. Now we are being very um, careful with the customers we choose uh, to work with. Uh, we've been working with several banks right now for credit cards uh, and auto, a major auto, um, uh, 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 I would say auto retailer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and we are working with some folks on the mortgage side for pre-approval for mortgages. Uh, you know, when you're going through that shopping experience with the home.
1: Eric, do you, um, given the fact that you have the models and, and the data in, in, in the background, do you guys spend a lot of time thinking about engagement and, lot, and, and different channels, I guess, the which are new channels, I guess, to deliver that type of engagement?
0: We do. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because with so many projects going on in the lab, it's, it's a matter of, you know, how many folks do you throw against the new uh, developing channels? Um, but, you know, I, I've, we found that a lot of these channels are easy to work with. For example, uh, voice, uh, or augmented or mixed reality, uh, virtual reality, uh, you know, we've, we've spent time building, building, uh, 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 beta products in, in all of those channels. Uh, but you know, they're all in very varying, uh, uh, S curves in terms of adoption. And, uh, uh, because of some of the cost infrastructures, I think it's going to be a while for some of those other ones like mixed reality and, and virtual reality to be, be mainstream.
1: Yeah, I feel like there's always a lot of hype and excitement around new channels initially, and it takes some time for adoption, obviously, to to, to catch up. Yeah,
0: I think voice voice might be a little closer. You know, I, I, I'm i a big believer in trying to, you know, if somebody's going to spend the money to uh, lay down the, the railroad tracks, uh, <laughs> and all you have to do is build cars and ride on top of them, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in, in building the cars. Mm-hmm. and And the nice thing about voice is you know, between, uh, Amazon, Google, uh, and Apple investing a tremendous amount in building these smart speakers and then consumers picking up the tab and, you know, buying them for their home. You know, the, the idea of building skills, uh, that other people can, can, can upload and use becomes, you know, it's almost a no brainer. Mm-hmm. The problem is, you know, I don't know, uh, how many folks, you know, that have actually uploaded a skill, uh, in one of their smart speakers, uh, It's not like, you know, well, it is kind of like uh, using your iPhone or your Android device and going to the app store, but because that's a disconnected process, you've got to go to a tablet or, you know, your, your laptop or whatever to, or your mobile device. Um, It doesn't really happen. A lot of people don't even know how to do it. So, you know, there's going to come a point, we believe that uh, display and voice are going to unite. and. And when that happens, it's already starting to happen, but just really, you know, on the on the fringe, right? It's like if I wanna if I wanna ask Alexa to change my channel on my television, I can do that. Or I can ask my Roku to do it if I wanna do it. You know, so so I can talk to my TV today. Not a lot of people talk to their TV, but you know, it's it's possible. But there's gonna come a point where that that television or other displays that you have in your house are gonna come alive with your voice. And when that happens, we've already developed interfaces for how you will go about shopping for credit we've already built the skills we've already we've already developed software for display so when it's the right time experience wants to be on their forward foot to get that out the door
1: interesting i guess we have time for one last question and I, I guess you talk about some of the things um that seem relatively close to to launch what about skunk works what about um big audacious ideas that 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 you get that excite you that you that you see coming down the pike that you know Maybe it's not this year or next year, but like uh, are there transformative technologies out there? Let me put it that way.
0: Absolutely. hundred percent. Actually, the thing that gets my, my, uh, my heart level racing is uh, actually it's, uh, it's in the world of cryptography. And I, uh, uh, you know, I spent a bit of time way early in my career working at Visa back in 94, 95 on set, which was uh, securing uh, internet transactions for payment using uh, you know, public key cryptography. Uh, I believe that uh, secure multi-party computation is going to open up a tremendous number of opportunities for the world. Uh, I think it's going to change the way we look at data aggregation, data modeling, uh, how decisions are made, uh, and it, allow- it allows multiple parties uh, to contribute information uh, to making a decision without the data ever leaving their enterprise. And um, you know, I don't know how much time we really have for me to explain it, but I would say that I As would like, I, cause I
1: don't, I don't know a lot about it. If you can give like a elevator view of it.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So, uh, well, I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so the, the elevator view would be that, um, uh, you get multiple parties that may, uh, compete with each other. Uh, but they realize that if they can collaborate in some meaningful way, they can, they can all make better decisions around something, whether it's, uh, around a consumer uh, consumers income or it could be uh, a commercial insurance carrier evaluating somebody's uh, risk it could be around ID authentication uh, but well, and the assumption
1: is that information asymmetry enabled them to be competitive they competed on
0: uh, they might they may be hmm. banks and they all compete with each other and you know okay. so they you know they uh, sharing information amongst competitors can often uh, you know that that slows the world down, you know, quite a bit, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, it's one of those things where the the more data uh, a business can compile in a competitive landscape, uh, you know, that is clearly uh, uh, can be a, a barrier to entry for others. Mm. Uh, you know, so so what SMPC allows competitors to do is share that information without yielding their competitive position. It it can it can maintain. A certain level of, uh, anonymity, uh, in the process. Um, and it doesn't require any third party intermediary to hold the data from all the other, uh, providers. Um, so, so for example, uh, we'll say in the commercial, uh, insurance space, I may sit on uh, a portfolio of people that I've booked for underwriting and I have a database of claims, uh, uh, associated with uh, that book of business that i that I have, I really don't want the other commercial carriers to know uh, that i'm the one that has booked this particular account and i don't want them to certainly don't want them to know how I've priced it um, i'm not particularly enthusiastic about sharing who filed claims, but I really want to know who's if if i'm going to book a new account if they filed a claim with somebody else so how can I share the claims data without my competitors knowing that I was the one that booked that account and without yielding any other specific information. So SMPC allows queries to run against that network of insurance companies, allows them to share uh, uh, insights on risk without yielding any of the competitor information or competitive information that they wanna keep uh, anonymous. Uh, and it doesn't require anybody to say, Hey, all insurance companies report us your data and then we'll, 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 uh, we'll go ahead and and then uh, report back to you every time you send us an inquiry. So, so it's, it's actually, it's, it's what I would consider to be disruptive innovation. Hmm. And I think the, uh, there are so many use cases for this, I'll say disaggregated, uh, uh, disaggregated data uh, um, decisioning that, um, you know, it sounds a little bit like blockchain, but it's not, mm-hmm. you know, that I think that's the, the, the key here. And, and the the, the cryptographic aspect of it is fantastic. It's, uh, it's an N minus one solution, meaning that you have to capture all the data, uh, uh running from an inquiry, uh, to be able to, uh, disrupt or decode, uh, the, uh, the message.
1: Interesting. Eric, thanks for sharing all the the insights that you guys are working on. And uh, thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet podcast today.
0: Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. Thank you so much.